going to ask you to stay on your feet for a moment. We're going to release the kids. They're going to head down the hall here. And then the rest of you all are going to stay down here with us. Um, and we're going to start by hearing from God's word. Todd, go ahead and come on up here. Todd's going to start by reading the word for us. Will you guys be nice to Todd as he comes up? Am I on? I am on. Good morning. How are you all? It's good to see you guys. So this morning we're going to read from the book of Genesis. It's chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of God. You guys can be seated. Thank you, Todd. Well, as I uh, mentioned at the beginning of our time together, we're finishing up our Thriving in Exile series today, which really looks at the lessons that we can learn from the people of Israel carried off into exile in Babylon against their will and all of a sudden found themselves where they used to be a minority in a world that they understood and a world that agreed with them on most things. Now they found themselves as a, as a minority. Did I say that before? They were a majority. Now they're a minority in Babylon with great pressure to lose their identity, to leave behind their old ways and to assimilate to the world of Babylon. I believe in this there are a lot of lessons for us today because we live right now in something of a cultural exile, or at least we're moving into one, where we've moved from a time that maybe many of you remember because many of you grew up in this world where it was really a majority Christian world. There were people you knew that weren't Christians, but you at least had this shared basis of faith. Well, now we've moved into a world where that's very different, and we're just continuing to go that direction, where now we're something more of an uncomfortable minority in this world, and we have to learn... What what it means to thrive under that kind of pressure. Uh, we've talked about this image of a tightrope, that thriving in exile looks a lot like being asked to walk a tightrope, where to keep our balance, we have to do two different things. On the one hand, we have to bless Babylon. And this is what the prophet Jeremiah says to the exiles in Babylon. He says, seek the welfare of the city where you've been sent into exile. And so part of their work, that part of what helps them keep their balance is that sometimes we have to bless Babylon. We look at, at the ways that we can agree with what the world is doing, the things that they call good that we also can call good according to the scriptures, ways that we can serve them and partner with them. But of course, on the other hand, there is to keep our balance. We can't just bless, we also have to resist. There are a lot of ways in which to keep our identity as God's people. There are things the world does that we have to say that's okay for them, but it's not okay for us. There are things that we have to resist, ways of life that we have to push back against in our own lives in order to keep our balance. Because if we fall off the tightrope, we fall either one direction or the other. If we only bless Babylon, we fall into the error of syncretism, which is just a fancy word for saying, whatever you say is good, I'm going to agree with it. Whatever the world says is fine, I'm going to find a way to twist my understanding of the scriptures so that it fits into that box. On the other hand, if we fall off the, if we only resist Babylon, we fall off the other direction into the error of sectarianism, which is really the tendency that, that um, so many churches have today and so many Christians have today to build up our walls higher, to say, we're just going to wait it out. We're going to kick the world out there and we're going to say whatever they do is bad and we're not going to practice discernment in how we can actually bless Babylon. And so the task that's before us is to keep our balance, to stay on the tightrope. 
We've talked in these last four weeks about a few different ways that, that God calls us to do that. One thing that helps us to keep our balance is a deeper devotion to God, putting down deep roots into his word so that when times are tough, when the pressure is on, we have deeper reserves of devotion to him and our relationship with him. We talked about, last week, we talked about how these relationships that we're called to have in the church, rigorous relationships, not just these loose networks that are very popular today, the kind of relationships that you build anywhere, but deep, committed, thick relationships with other believers will help us to, to fall, not to fall off of the tightrope. And then today, I want to give you my big idea. The last thing we're going to look at is that thriving in exile means mobilizing in mission. To keep our balance, we have to move forward. I recently, over the summer, I got a new attachment for my bike that uh, where Rosie, instead of riding in the, in the trailer behind me or on the seat behind me, now she has a seat that's right up on my handlebars, which sounds pretty scary, you know, but she seems to like it. But, um, <laughs> but I, I, right away, it felt like I was learning to ride a bike all over again because I couldn't figure out, like I'm a little nervous to go out on the road with my two-year-old like hurtling through the air in front of me, right? Um, and so I, I'm trying to get my balance before I go, like to make sure that I can do this. And I just feel like there's no way. There is no way. This added weight up in the front just feels really unstable and I don't know how I'm gonna do it. And then I remembered when I learned to ride a bike. <laughs> and I remembered that nobody can Stand up, well, maybe some of you can. My brother Luke probably can because he can do anything. Um, but uh, if uh, you can't really stand, like sit on a bike and just expect to just stand there, right? Like an ordinary bicycle, like no training wheels, you know, ordinary sized tires. There's just no physical way that someone like me anyway is going to be able to get on a bike and just balance myself there. You have to move forward. You have to pedal. And then as you get the forward momentum, you find the balance and you don't fall down one way or the other. And so I remembered that and all of a sudden it worked. You just had to take that step, that step of faith, ooh, where um, you know, suddenly I'm moving forward and I can keep my balance on the bike and Rosie doesn't fall down and, and have a tragedy. And so it was really, it was kind of like this duh moment, but it got me thinking as I'm thinking about what it means to thrive in exile. I think very often we make the mistake as Christians of thinking, I need to get this really, I need to build this really strong faith. I need to be able to answer any question. I need to be able to do, to have just everything locked in and just have this, this perfect kind of Christian life before I can go out and engage other people, before I can invite them to know Jesus. Problem with that is really in the same way that you, you have to find your balance as you ride the bike, in the same way when you do that, you're missing out on one of the things that builds a strong faith, which is moving out into the world in the name of Jesus. And so today I want to challenge you as the pressure is on, as it's more difficult for us to keep our balance, really paradoxically, even though it goes against our natural inclinations, we have to move out to be a minority in this world, to be in exile, is not a reason to sit back and to try to hunker down and make it through. Instead, it's an invitation to say, let's move forward and find our balance as we move out to the world. I want to start today by talking about the why. Why do we need to mobilize on mission? Why will this help us to thrive in exile? And I want to give you two reasons today. First, God always works through a righteous remnant. This is just an idea that you see play out in the pages of Scripture, in the storyline of the Bible, is that God's preferred way of engaging the world 
is through a smaller group of people that remains faithful to him. You see this throughout the whole story of the Bible, but you see it especially in the pages of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, in fact, is the story where God unexpectedly, without any prior introductions to our knowledge, breaks into this man Abram's life and speaks to him out of nowhere. This is what he says. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God speaks to one solitary man out of the mass of humanity, and he first of all tells him that he's going to bless him. He's going to turn him into a great nation. Now, very often, I think, unfortunately, our tendency when we read this passage or we tell the story of Abraham is to focus on blessing as like this special status that Abraham now has. And to a certain degree, that's true, right? God tells Abraham that those who he blesses, he's going to bless, and those who he curses, he's going to curse. And so this is, I mean, really a, a very special status, and yet we miss out on the fact that he says right there in verse 2, he does all of this so that Abram will be a blessing. And then later on in in verse 3, he says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so from the very beginning, God's choice of one man and his family that would become the one nation that would be his chosen people, his choice was less about some special status that he got to enjoy for himself or some special status that God's people got to enjoy for themselves and more about what God was going to do through them in the rest of the world. We look at God's promise to Abraham and our tendency is to think, why is it so exclusivist? Why does God want one people, one family that is, are going to be his people? And we miss the point that in choosing one people, God's intention was always to bless all people, that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. And as the story of the Bible goes on, we see that God uses one man's family to work out his plans in the world. When that family becomes a nation, God focuses his, he focuses his remnant in on one tribe from that nation. Then he focuses even further on one line, one kingly line within that tribe, and then eventually on one descendant of that line who is Jesus Christ. And so you see in Jesus, the one who dies for the sins of humanity, the one who who breaks the power of sin and death and hell by his resurrection from the dead, he is the one by whom God's promise to Abraham comes true. He is the one in whom all families of the earth are blessed. God chooses a few in order to reach many. That's his way of doing things that we discover in the pages of scripture. We, what that means for us today is that we need to embrace the position of being in exile because it's in a moment like this that God intends to work. God chooses a small group of people. He he carries through a righteous remnant and he uses that minority in the mass of humanity to bless everyone. I believe that's what he wants to do through us. And so when we find ourselves as Christians in this moment of exile, we have to fight the tendency that it is to to fight back. To say, we've got to turn back the clock. We've got to get back the power that we used to have. We've got to retake these things. We've got to claw it back. Because really, this moment is an invitation from God to be used by him in the way that he always works. That we see through the pages of Scripture. We can be God's righteous remnant if we just see the opportunity and are faithful to be obedient. Number two, why 
Why is mission central to thriving in exile? Well, because mission is the verb form of church. Now look, you're an English teacher out there. I want you to know, I know that mission is not a verb. It is a noun. But I'm trying to make a point here. And so go with me for a second. Mission is what the church does. That's all that I mean here. It's not about going, it's not only about going overseas. It's not only about, you know, those, those people who will be called to pack up their entire lives and move to a foreign nation to minister to people and to learn a language and to, to, to actually go and live there. Like, that's part of the mission, but it's more than that as well. And by the way, we at Southside truly believe in that work, and I hope that you see that in the ministries that we have and the way that we talk. But I don't want us to excuse ourselves, all of us in this room, from the work of mission by thinking that it's the reserve of some super-Christians. Really, mission is what the church does. This idea comes from passages like this, from John chapter 20, where Jesus is with his disciples, and he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for sent in this passage where Jesus says, the Father sent me and I'm sending you, is where we get the word mission. It's from the same root there in, in Greek. Jesus was sent by the Father and he sends us out as well. And so trace this out a little bit because what Jesus is saying here is really incredible. That in the same way that God the Father sent Jesus into the world, he is now sending us into the world as well. And why did the Father send Jesus into the world? To die on the cross to rise from the grave, to do away with the, the punishment for sin, to set us free to have a relationship with God through him. And so what does it mean now that just as the Father sent Jesus, now Jesus is sending us? Well, it means that we are now the means by which God intends to continue the work of Jesus Christ. Not to say that you and I are going to go out and die for anyone's sins. That's already done. That part is over. It is finished, Jesus said. And yet, that message, that, that introduction of people to that story, to that reality, is now carried out by Jesus through us by his Holy Spirit, which is why he says, receive the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Paul makes this even clearer in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, or representatives of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so you can trace out, and, and Paul's thinking, the same two movements that Jesus talks about, that, that the Father sends Jesus, and then Jesus sends us. In the same way, Paul says that we were reconciled to God. God reconciled us to himself. And then secondarily, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, salvation and mission are closely tied together. God saves us in order to make us the means by which he will bring salvation to others. You see, in the same way that we, we can't think about the, the blessing of Israel as this exclusivist kind of blessing just for them, but actually as a ministry to the rest of the world, we should think about our salvation in the same way. If we think too much about our salvation as, oh, it's just this special status that I now have before God. I mean, that's true. 
you're saved, you're forgiven, you're welcome in his family. And yet, as the scripture tells us, when we are reconciled to God, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. We are sent out by Jesus Christ to widen that circle, to bring others into that life. As Jesus said, we're called to be fishers of men. And so mission is the verb form of church. It's what the church does. I love this quote that is maybe even better. Emil Bruner says, the church exists by mission just as a fire exists by burning. Where there is no mission, there is no church. And so in other words, mission is part and parcel of what it means to be the church. If we, Southside, are not proclaiming the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, in word and deed, we aren't a church. We cease to be a church. We might be a, a social club, a religious institution, or even a humanitarian charity, but we're not a church. We're not the people of God because the people of God have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Mission is what the church does. And so when you think of being a part of a church, what comes to mind? I mean, think about it this way. If somebody were to, were to ask you, what does it mean to be a member of a church? How would you answer? And look, to a certain degree, I get why you would answer the way that you would, because I probably wouldn't shoot for this either. You want to make people feel comfortable. But the things that might come to mind are, well, it, it means, you know, attending. It means going to church on, on Sunday mornings, right? It might also mean fellowship, so that maybe you join a small group, or, you know, you link up with other Christians, and you try to serve them. Maybe if you really want to scare somebody, you tell them it means serving and, and volunteering and even giving of your money toward the church. I mean, that would be, you know, if you really want to scare somebody off from becoming a member of the church. And yet, why isn't it that on our list would be this idea of sharing our faith, inviting others to know Jesus Christ? I mean, if it's really true that that mission is what the church does, shouldn't that at least enter into our minds when we think about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ? And yet that would be so far down our list that we even think about it as a different thing. We think about it as like, well, here's what it means to be a member of a church, and then if you're just a real crazy person, go share your faith, right? But no, mission is the verb form of church. So now let me change gears a little bit here. That's just to tell you really why. Why is this the case? Well, first of all, because of the way that God works. Why do we need to engage in mission? Well, because God works through a righteous remnant. But then secondarily, because it's part of the identity of who we are as the church. And so now I want to turn the page here and talk about the how. How do we live in mission in the world? And I want to give you three different ways here. Number one, we live on mission in the world by living the gospel communally. Now, this is not probably the place that you thought we would begin when it comes to, to living on mission in the world. But here's one way to think about it. The gospel, as it's proclaimed, as it's shared, as people come to believe it, it creates a community. I mean, look around the room. Everybody here is here today because of the gospel, either because you believed the gospel, and so now you're here to, to hear more of the gospel, to, to celebrate the gospel together, to worship the God of the gospel, or you're here to hear the gospel today. And so the gospel creates a community, but it also creates a certain kind of community, that the community that believes the gospel is also meant to live by the gospel. In other words, we are supposed to, as we talked about last week, have a certain character in our interactions with one another that look like Jesus Christ. 
that we follow his example by the power of his Holy Spirit living in us to actually live that life of humble service and love one to another. That's the kind of community that we're meant to have. And if we can live with that kind of love for one another, that will be a powerful illustration of the truth of the gospel to the world. On the other hand, if we proclaim the gospel and we fail to live it out, we don't have the character of Jesus Christ in our interactions with one another, then we actually undermine the truth of the gospel for someone who hears it. Because if they hear us say, there's a God who loves you, there's a God who became a human being and died for you, there's a God who didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, submitting to death, even death on a cross. And then they come into our communities and they experience the same thing that you can get out there. They experience infighting and competition and distrust and gossip and hurtful words and betrayals. That, more than anything else, will undermine someone's ability to believe. They might say, that message sounds really good, and I really want to believe it. And then when they experience the opposite among Christians, they might say, I knew it was too good to be true. We're to live the gospel communally. Remember what Jesus told his disciples, John chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for one another is how the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. That's what he told us. And so apart from whatever we say to the world, the way that they will truly know that we actually are the disciples of this kind of Jesus that we read about in the scriptures is whether or not we love one another. That's what gives evidence for the claims that we make with our mouths. We are called to humbly, gently, kindly, and lovingly give, forgive, bear with, pray for, serve, encourage, and help one another. And as we do, the world will see the character of Jesus and the truth of the gospel in us. I want to give you one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite theologians, Leslie Newbegin. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible or believable? that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. So just pause there for a second. What he's talking about is just how unbelievable the message of the gospel really is. That the eternal God of the universe is the man Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. He says, how is it that people are going to come to believe that? Well, he says, I am suggesting that the only answer is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of the many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel. Evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles and Christian literature, conferences and books. But I am saying that these are all secondary and that they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead back to a believing community. I love that idea because so many of those things he lists we all would say are good things 
It is a good thing to share the gospel in all of those different ways with books and conferences and distribution of Bibles and all of those things. Those are all good things. But what he's saying is if you, for instance, have a conference where you give a message and a bunch of people raise a hand to accept Jesus Christ, but then they go out into the world and they have nothing to encourage them in that, no community to come around them to help them to grow, then they're going to be like the, the seeds that Jesus talks about in his parable of the sower who are thrown on, on rocky ground who have no root and who die. We need the community of followers of Jesus to provide the context in which people cannot just hear and believe the gospel, but, but um, experience it and accept it and come to live by it. And so I want to ask you today, are you living the gospel? And are you living communally? Because I think some of us may be living the gospel or at least trying to live the gospel, trying to obey the commands of Jesus, trying to follow the example of Jesus in our work, with our families, as we walk through this world, but we're trying to do it alone. And you know what? You may think that being here today means that you're not trying to do it alone, and I hope that to a certain degree that's true. I hope that you find here the community that will sustain you through this, that will give you the context to live out the commands of Jesus, but it could be very easy for you not to come into this room to just sit through the talk, sit through the worship, and then leave at the end, and still you're on your own. You're doing this by yourself. You don't have, you're not living the gospel together with others. Others of you today might say, well, I'm, I'm definitely living communally. I'm coming to every church event that I can, and I'm seeing friends all the time, and, and I'm definitely leaning on them when, when hard times come, but are you living the gospel in that community? Or are you just kind of hitching your wagon to the community of the church and getting all the benefits that come from it without actually intending to live out the gospel in this context, in this church? We truly need both because the gospel is meant to be lived out together. And evangelism, as we go and we share the gospel with others, evangelism is meant to have this loving community of the church as a visual aid so that we can say to people, hey, if you're having trouble believing this, come and experience it with God's people. How many of us would feel comfortable doing that? So first, how do we live on mission in this world? We live the gospel communally. Second, we speak the gospel courageously. Now, as much as I believe everything I just said about living the gospel communally, I have to recognize the fact that if we think that us having love for one another and just having a really vibrant community where we're living out the gospel together, if we think that that is enough for people to understand the gospel and come to a saving faith in Jesus, then we are kidding ourselves. It will not be enough. And here's why. People will interpret whatever kind of life we have together as a church, they will interpret it according to their prior beliefs about the world if we don't tell them why we live the way that we do. If we don't explain the love that we have for one another, people might say, well, it's, I mean, it's a church, and so these people are all deluded, you know, they're all crazy, so of course they love one another, you know, they believe in, in God, and they're insane people, you know, they, they, they might interpret it that way. Maybe if they're a little more charitable or a little more friendly toward religion in general, they might say, well, they're all really good people, you know, they, they, they love one another, and they genuinely do, and it's because they're good people, they're kind people, and they serve the community, and that's, that's all wonderful. If we don't tell people, no, the reason that we love one another is because we've experienced the love of God. Because God is loving through us. If we don't give them the reason for it, if we don't explain 
where our love comes from and whose example we're trying to follow in Jesus Christ, then they're never going to put two and two together and come out to five, which is really what we're asking them to do. We have to speak the gospel to give the context for the kind of life that we live together. Look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul's really giving a summary of the gospel here. He's telling this church in Ephesus that he's writing to that they've been saved not by their own good works, that it wasn't something that they did, something they, they did, or they, they didn't merit it, they didn't earn it, this forgiveness and this life in Jesus Christ, but actually it's the free gift of God. No one can boast because no one earned it. It's the free gift of God. But then, do you notice what he does? He says, but there are good works for you to do. You just can't say that those are what merit your salvation. You are saved, and then God releases you to do the good works that he's prepared for you to do. In the next chapter, Paul tells us what those good works are. He says, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These words in this passage are incredible. I mean, it's so poetic. It, it's, it stirs your heart if you really hear what he's saying, that the good works God has prepared for you to do are to preach to the Gentiles or to those who don't believe in God yet the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ that he's given to us the ability to, to go out into the world and to reveal, to bring light for everyone to what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. In other words, to reveal to everyone who God is and what he's been up to in history that, is, that everyone has been ignorant to up to now. We get to be the people who bring the truth to the world. And then finally, as he says it here, to, to, through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Do you know what he's talking about here? And all, these, all this flowery language, all this heart-stirring language? He's talking about sharing your faith. <laughs> the very thing that we all hate to do and dread doing, Paul is talking about with this language. We talk about it like it's this burden that we just, we, oh, I guess I have to do this, or I guess if the Lord puts me in that position, I'm going to be courageous and I'm going to take those opportunities. And we see it as this like horrible thing that's put on us that we don't want to have. Paul talks about it like it's the greatest thing in the universe to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why don't we talk like that? To, to reveal the manifold wisdom of God to this world. I want to tell you today, as interesting as you may think you are and as, as knowledgeable as you may think you are, if you are saved by Jesus, the single most important thing that you know is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The single most important thing you can share with someone else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being a Christian does not make you an expert on anything but the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus. And I would add this that I didn't say at the first one, your own sinfulness <laughs> should make you an expert on that too. That's what you have to contribute to this world. 
And so why is it that the followers of Jesus are content to go through this world and share just about everything else, our opinion on this or that, this news story, this political thing, instead of drawing people toward the manifold wisdom of God in the scriptures, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very thing that makes us who we are, the ministry of reconciliation. I don't want to be content to talk about anything else until I've made sure I've talked about that. Let me illustrate this for you. I'm going to go to the iPad here so I can catch my breath for a moment. But I think that uh, to a certain degree, it might sound like I'm being hard on you, but the reality is this is just the world that we live in. Nobody wants to talk about the gospel. So I recognize that. Like We don't want to talk about it, but nobody out there wants to talk about it either. It's not like people are busting down your doors asking, tell me the unsearchable riches of Christ, you know? And so even if you're, as you're trying to share the gospel, or even build relationships with non-Christians, maybe you've had this experience, I have, where they are already trying to figure you out a little bit, right? And usually it comes along the lines of like, they want to know what you believe about X, right? Before they can go any further with you, before I can walk down that road with you, I've got to make sure that this thing that's really important to me that we're in some kind of agreement. Otherwise, it's a conversation stopper. And you know what? We think that we're superior in that, but the reality is we're trying to figure out the same thing too. I mean, God help us if in these conversations we try to figure out, well, where do you stand on this, on this issue of the day? And then we decide that somebody can't hear the gospel. We can't further that conversation with them. But anyway, this is, this is really how it works out. So here's one way to, to visualize this. There are some big issues in our world today that are really conversation stoppers. When you come into a conversation with someone, you realize that there's not gonna be any further fruit from this. You might be civil toward one another, but you're not gonna be friends, you're not gonna be sharing the gospel with that person. And these are things like, I don't know, LGBTQ, race, and abortion. We'll just put those up there. And right about now, somebody's really regretting inviting someone to church today. But don't worry. I'm not going to do anything offensive here. I just want to point out the reality that these are the things everybody wants to find out about, right? Before they have a conversation with you and before we have a conversation with them, if we're being honest with ourselves, we want to know are we in some kind of alignment on these things? Because we know it's going to be a non-starter if we're not. The world that we live in is too divisive. We're too dug into our own positions. We can't communicate across the divide when we find that we're not in alignment on these things. And so here's one way to think about this that might be helpful. These issues are just at the surface. Down beneath it is like a huge iceberg of meaning. And it's everything down here that leads us to engage in one way or another up here. What's down below the surface? Well, it's a little bit more complicated, but it's questions like this. Where did it come from? Anybody know what the it in that sentence is? Everything, you know, <laughs> existence. Where did it all come from? What's the origin of it? That tells you a lot about how you're going to engage on any of these issues. Another question would be, what's wrong? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with people? Why, are, why do we just sense that there's something off about this world, that there's some problem that needs to be fixed? Another question would be, how do we set it right? Should have made shorter questions here. How do we set it right? And then finally, what's my role? 
how am I to participate in setting it right? And the reality is a lot of people don't think you can set it right, that it's just one disappointment after another until the sun blows up and we all die. If that's what you believe, it's going to really impact how you engage with these issues up here. Well, I don't know if, if you noticed this, but really the gospel answers all of these points down here. The gospel is a story helps us to account for each and every one of them. It tells us, where did it all come from? It came from a loving God who created you to know him and have a relationship with him, who designed you to glorify him and worship him. What's wrong with the world? Well, that we rejected that love of God. Therefore, sin has come into the world, and it, le it leads to all the things that are wrong with the world, all come from that rejection of God and his design and his intention and his love for us. How do we set it right? Well, that's what we've been talking about today, that not only are we reconciled to God, he's the one who set it right through Jesus Christ. He draws us back into a right relationship with him. And then what's our role? Well, it's, as Paul said, the ministry of reconciliation, that we get to widen the circle and draw people into the life of God. If we have a full awareness of where our engagement, and hopefully this is true, because I think for some of us it's just not true, but what we believe down here should impact how we engage up here. And so when we come into conversations with people who are all focused on things going up here, evangelism is about saying, let's go under the surface. Let's talk about these things. Recognizing that until we at least understand each other, understand what's under the water here, we're never going to be able to even discuss the things up here. you're saved by Jesus, the single most important thing you can share with someone else is everything down here. And so stop spending all your time up here. Whether it's time with other people, right, in the sense of conversations that you have with other people, or it's just time by yourself, listening to radio and reading newspapers and things online that all engage with the issues up here. You, follower of Jesus, need to go below the surface. You need to be discipled down here, discipled in the gospel. Only then will you be ready to move up above the surface. But we don't want to do that. We want it to be quicker. We want to have an opinion and have an educated one on all of these things. Sometimes we want to have an offensive one on all of these things just to impress our friends. But in reality, follower of Jesus, you belong under the water here. Once you've been trained down here, then you can move up. And, and then you'll be able to engage with other people on these issues as well. So finally, mobilizing on mission means, first, that we live the gospel communally, second, that we speak the gospel courageously, and then finally, we demonstrate the gospel compassionately. Jesus had an interaction with someone along these lines in the gospel of Luke. I just want to go ahead and go to this passage. He says, it says, behold, a lawyer stood up, which is always a start to a good story. A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So it's really interesting interaction here. The lawyer here knows that according to God's law, the, the point of his life is to love God and to love his neighbor as himself. He knows that he has an obligation to love certain people 
as he loves himself. Now, that's part of the law of God in the book of Leviticus. Well, what's really interesting is that the lawyer senses that he needs more information here. Because when he's looking at this law, which is in the Old Testament, it says you're to love your neighbor. So many of the Jewish people understood that to mean I'm going to love the people who are in the people of God. That there, you, could take a, you could draw a circle around it and say these are the people I'm obligated to love. I have to love these people. Everyone else, I'm off the hook. I don't have to love them. The lawyer here is asking, Jesus, where do you draw the circle? Who is my neighbor? Is it just the Israelites? Is it the people of my own tribe? Is it the people in the, the nations next to Israel, but not the ones that are two nations away? Like, he, he wants some specifics here on who he has an obligation to love. And Jesus' answer to him is downright jarring, if you really understand the question that he's asking, because Jesus is going to tell a story. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to the place where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The lawyer knows he's supposed to love his neighbor. He just wants to know who his neighbor is. And so he asks Jesus, where do I draw the line? Where do I draw the circle? Who am I obligated to love? And Jesus takes his pen and he draws a circle around the whole of humanity. He says, if you're drawing the circle and you're leaving anyone out, you have failed to understand really what my commandment is. See, we are just the same way. We think about love as something we do in the church and then as like mission or evangelism is something that we do out here. But in reality, Jesus does not give us permission to do that. He tells us that the very same love that we are to have for one another is the kind of love that it extends itself naturally to all people. And so as we, spread, as we share the gospel, we can demonstrate that gospel compassionately. We do it together as a community as we love one another, but we also do it together on mission as we go out to the world and we become servants in the mold of Jesus Christ to the world that we live in. If we do that then people will not only hear the gospel, but they will see it and experience it. I want to ask you today a couple of questions here. Is it possible for someone to belong at our church, to belong in your small group before they believe? Is it possible that someone could belong, could be loved and served as a member of our church, a part of our church? but not yet believe in Jesus Christ. To make it even more pointed here, are we willing to serve even those who are hostile to our faith, to the gospel? Or maybe even those who have roundly rejected Jesus Christ. Will we still serve them? Are they our neighbor? Let's get really practical here at the end. I want to give you an application which is very simple as we talk about mission and we talk about this high calling that God has called us to, 
I just simply want to ask you to start where you are. Some of you may be asked to do great things like packing up and moving across the world and for, for the sake of the gospel. There are people in our church who are discerning whether that is a call on their life right now and people who have determined that it is and are preparing to go into the mission field. And so this isn't to say that that couldn't be you, but I just want to talk to everyone today and say, God intends for you to live on mission right where you are right now. And you don't have to go anywhere or change anything about where you are or who you're with in order to start being obedient to this today. I want to read for you the Great Commission the end of the gospel of of Matthew, Jesus takes, the risen Jesus takes his disciples up to the top of a hill and says, Jesus came to them and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm not the first person to say this, and I won't be the last, but a lot of people believe that that go, in verse 19, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, that really it could be translated, as you go, make disciples. As you go. In other words, Jesus isn't necessarily saying here that everyone is going to have to pick up and go somewhere. He's actually saying that as you live your life, in every place where you find yourself, you are to live out this commission. And so the Great Commission is not great in the sense that it asks us to do great things, in the sense of of out of the ordinary or things that we wouldn't ordinarily be doing or go places where we wouldn't ordinarily be. It's great in the sense that it's all-encompassing. It is a Great Commission that draws our lives into obedience to God, that everywhere we go, whoever we are with, we would be seeking to do this, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of God and to teach them to observe all that he has commanded. So where do we carry out the Great Commission? Not just here, not just in your small group. In fact, not even primarily in these places because most of us already believe. We're to live out the Great Commission everywhere you go. At work, for some of you going back to work tomorrow, with your family, for some of you in a few moments going to be with your family. Everywhere you go, you are to live out these words of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? with wherever the world is going to take you this week. This means all of us, we are missionaries. Just to come back now as we close out this series on exile, being in exile means that we need to see ourselves as living in a foreign country. We need to see ourselves as living in a foreign nation because truly that's what we are. This is not our home. And yeah, you can be a good American and a good Washingtonian and a good Spokenite and all the other things. But your primary identity, who you really are, is a citizen of the kingdom of God. So let's start acting like it. And just imagine what God could do with a church like that. Let's pray. Father, we... Just stop and maybe just try to use our imaginations and prayer for a moment and picture that we are there with you on that day you gave that commission. God, your disciples have been through a lot in the days leading up to that. 
horrifying night where they saw their Savior crucified and killed and they scattered and some of them betrayed and denied him. A thrill of hope as they discovered that you had risen from the grave and it had done away with sin and death and shame and guilt forever. And now, God, to be gathered in the presence of Jesus Christ and to be told that we are your plan for continuing the work of drawing people to yourself. God, I pray as we worship now that we could understand that for the sobering responsibility that it is, but much more for the incredible privilege that it is. As Paul said to proclaim the unspeakable riches of Jesus Christ, to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. Lord, help us to be good to that task, to say yes to you today, and wherever life takes us to live for you, as your ambassadors. In Jesus' name.